Well, allow me to ask you a question this morning as I begin. Here's the question. What's at the core of real change? In other words, if you peel away all the layers of true transformation, what would you find at the center? What makes people change? I think this is a question that Peter addresses in his next section, beginning in verse 13 all the way through the end of the first chapter. Now, I like these kinds of questions. In fact, in our family, for a number of years, uh, and Julie's tagged me with this, I'm kind of known as the why guy. And it's more of an irritation to her than it is of a compliment to me. Um, and our staff, they, would, they may know this, I don't know, it's kind of a thing in our family, but for years when something would happen, especially in regards to the kids getting sick when they were little, I just would want to know why they got sick. And she would say, well, honey, this is what kids do, they get sick. I'm like, well, I want to know why. Like, can we stop it? And I sometimes get a, a little uh, intense when I feel like there's a problem we can't solve. And, and this especially was highlighted when we'd go to the doctor and then they'd give them like a, 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 some medicine. And after a few years, I realized they just gave them the, the top level, like the entry level medicine. And I'm like, they should have given them the other stuff. It'll knock it out quicker. And, and she would say things like, well, they just can't go there. I said, why not? Can we just go to the real root problem? Why are they sick? And what's the best medicine? And she'd say, you just need to relax a little bit. You know, like this is what kids do. They get sick. And so that's over the period of years and other situations of just asking why a lot. She's kind of said, you're kind of like the why guy around here, you know. And Peter kind of answers this question for us in these verses. He gets to the root issue. He provides for us an answer to this question. I want to just take the first four verses this morning and begin to unpack the answer to the question of what's at the core of true gospel transformation. We'll look at it increasingly over the next few weeks, but let's just take the first four verses, beginning in verse 13, and let's see if we can begin to understand the answer. I'll read... 1 Peter 1, 13 through 16, follow along in your Bibles, have your journals there ready to take notes, have your pen handy as well. God would say to us through Peter, inspired by the Holy Spirit, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Do you see the, the change occurring? We're not acting in the passions of our former life. We're now living in our new life. We're living holy. And he says that we are to do this in our conduct because it is written, and then he quotes here a verse from Leviticus, will you say this final phrase with me? You shall be holy, for I am holy. Now we're going to extract a number of things from these verses. But let's be clear about one thing that these verses shout to us. We are a different people. God's people fundamentally are called out to be distinct, different. We are his people. I mean, this passage, as we unpack it, you'll, you'll see this theme coming through loud and clear that, that we're just a different, we're a distinct, we're a changed, 
We are a holy people. We're separate. We're called out. We're God's, not the world's. In fact, in almost a humorous way, and I think this is more humorous to our culture, not to Peter, he uses the word called here. You notice that? You're called to be holy. And sometimes in Christian circles, especially in ministry circles, we use that word to describe perhaps someone's call to a vocation. We'll say he was called to be a pastor or he was called to be a missionary. I don't know if that's necessarily wrong, but here's the most biblical understanding of called. We are all called to be holy. You have a calling on your life. What is it? To be holy, to be distinctly different, set apart. You're God's, not your own or the world's. So that's, first of all, just fundamentally and summarily clear. But I think what he does next is he shows us the two ways that occurs. Like, how does someone fundamentally different? How do they live holy in their conduct? How does that occur? I think Peter lays out for us, and the movement of the text shows it, that it starts in our minds and moves to our bodies. Notice how verses 13 and 14 really have a a focus on thinking the right way. Do you see that in the verses? Your noses are in the Bible, right? Look at the word minds in verse 13, the word sober-minded in verse 13. Even the idea of not being conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, this idea of like these inner cravings, these desires that, that we know exist, we're not giving in to them. So this whole internal mental mind thing going on. There's a different way of thinking for God's people, and that leads then to a different way of acting. You see the, the idea of conduct coming out in verse 15, uh, it's, it's, of course, rooted in God's character, but, but Peter here is making this kind of movement from how we think to how we act. And, of course, our thinking, of course, is rooted on this hope that we have in Christ. That's why he says, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Christ. So our thinking has a, has a spiritually confident aspect to it. It's rooted in Christ and his grace. And then our conduct is holy. I just want you to see that when Peter says we're different, he sees two ways that begins to occur. We think differently, and as a result, we act differently. If you're with me, just kind of nod your head. You're tracking with me? This is kind of the movement of the text. So what I want to do for a few more minutes is examine these two aspects. This call to think in a different way, and this call to act in a different way. Again, let's revisit verses 13 and 14. Eyes on the text. Let's see what Peter would say to us. He says, therefore, and of course that means we're to look back and think in light of what was said earlier, we're now to take action. So what was said earlier? Well, basically a, a, an incredible discourse on God's great work of mercy and grace and salvation. We saw an expansive view of it in the first few verses of chapter 1. We see an invasive view of it in the last few verses of that section, like 10 through 12. So Peter's saying, in light of all that God has done in his merciful, graceful work of salvation, and by the way, he does mention the word grace in verse 10. Do you see that? You should circle the word grace in verse 10, draw a line up to verse 13 and circle the word grace there, connect them, because Peter here is saying, in light of, of the grace that God gave us in the past, you should now... Prepare your minds, be self-disciplined, self-controlled. In other words, uh, remove distractions and focus on the grace that is coming at the revelation of Christ. So he says, in light of past grace, make sure you're focused on future grace. 
He amplifies this by saying to us, you should prepare your minds. I think a better translation may be the phrase, gird up the loins of your mind. Some of your translations will say that. Here's what he's, he's, he's metaphorically using a runner as an illustration. And in that day, in that culture, they would often have longer robes or longer garments on. And when it came time to run to deliver a message, they would take their garments and kind of wrap them up and tuck them in their belt so they were free to run without distraction or being detoured. He's now saying that's how you should be in your mind. Get rid of distractions, gather all the loose thoughts, and let's focus on what? On setting our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us when Christ is revealed. The word revealed there is the apocalypse. So when Christ is unveiled, there's a grace that will be coming. What kind of grace is that? It's the grace of finishing the work of salvation. We could even say consummating salvation. In the past, verses 10 through 12 and previous even, he talked about initiating salvation. But both are referred to as grace. One's past grace, one is future grace. And Peter here is saying, this is the key to thinking right. This is what you should focus on. In light of past grace, set your minds on future grace. Think properly, correctly, singularly, focusedly, vertically. Now, this type of thinking is really what obedient children do. You see verse 14? Notice this transition phrase, as obedient children. In other words, this is how God's children should think. And as a result, they won't be then conformed to the passions of their former ignorance. The word conformed there means squeezed. So as you think correctly, watch this, about past grace and about future grace. As those occupy your attention, you'll avoid thinking like the world and being molded into its image. Instead, you'll be transformed into God's image, which in a word, you'll live in a holy manner. And we'll get there in a moment. Just understand, again, he's speaking here of thinking rightly so that you're not conformed to the world. This mirrors Romans 12, doesn't it? Romans 12, 1 and 2, when Paul would say, do not be conformed to the world. Don't be squeezed by the culture. Don't be molded by the world. Who doesn't feel that pressure, right? Externally trying to kind of corner you and squeeze you into thinking the way it thinks. He says, don't be conform to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, Romans 12, 2. So Paul and Peter both agree, it starts in the head, thinking correctly. And what enables us to think correctly is knowing what God did in the past in salvation and what God's going to do in the future at Christ's revelation. Both past grace and future grace enable us to think correctly as they occupy our attention. And, we, and we, we remove distractions, we filter out the things that detour our thinking, and we focus on those. As we do that, our actions begin to change. And this is why he moves now to our conduct in verse 14, excuse me, verse 15. He says, but as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all your conduct. Notice how he roots this call to holy conduct in the character of God. And I might add even the conduct of God. He says, because God is holy, you should be holy. That's a pretty high bar, isn't it? It's a high calling. Amen. So Peter here quotes Leviticus. And in a sense, he echoes himself in 15 and 16. He says, God is holy and he's called you to holiness. This is how you can conduct yourself. It flows from thinking rightly. And then he repeats himself in 16 by saying this, and he quotes Leviticus, you shall be holy for I am holy. 
Now, that phrase is interesting. I've asked myself, why would Peter reach back and grab verses from Leviticus? It's not like, you know, for us, the most common book, right? You probably may not have read Leviticus this week. Maybe you weren't aware it was even the book of the Bible. Like, and where does that name come from? What does it mean? In fact, Peter pulls this verse from Leviticus 11, verse 44, but it's also mentioned four other times in Leviticus and once in Deuteronomy. This phrase, be holy for I am holy. It's mentioned in Leviticus 19, 2, Leviticus 27, also verse 26, Leviticus 21, 8. And so there's this common theme in Leviticus that God expected his people Israel to be holy because he was holy. Why would Peter pull that and place it here when talking about how we're to live in a holy fashion? Here's what I think is going on. Follow me if you can. Leviticus is the book of the Old Testament that relayed to God's people Israel how they were to relate to God. He delivered them from Egypt. That's what Exodus concerns itself with. They were then brought to Mount Sinai. And at Mount Sinai, God gave them the law. And the law was designed to show them how to relate to God. And Leviticus really is a book about sacrifices. There are five main sacrifices the Israelites were to engage in. Uh, they were sometimes daily, other times monthly, or just regular and periodic. There was an annual sacrifice known as the Day of Atonement. And then there were also other kind of lifestyle, and I'll use this air quotes here, sacrifices they would make, such as when they would uh, harvest their crops, they would leave the edges for those who were poor or destitute or for those who weren't in Israel yet but were foreigners or strangers or what the Bible calls aliens. So they would sacrifice a portion of their fields for those who were less fortunate, for those who weren't in their family yet, so to speak. And there were other things they did that would mark their sacrificial nature of living. And the goal of a Leviticus is to show them how to live sacrificially in light of God's sacrifice, because that's what their deliverance from Egypt was. God brought them out of Egypt by his grace and mercy, called them to himself, made them his people, and said, now I want you to live a certain way and relate to me. And the whole thing's about sacrifice, God's sacrifice for them as the motivation for them to live a life of sacrifice back to him. I think that's what Peter has in mind here. When he's saying, when, when you look at what God did in the past in saving us by his mercy, not our merit, and you look at what God is going to do when Jesus comes and finish that work of salvation, that's just a gracious act of God. He's merciful and gracious and loving. And so now... Let that be your focus. Let that be the way you think. Let that be your mental obsession so that that becomes your, your, your conduct. Your actions begin to show that. That's why and how we live holy like God is holy. We focus on his grace. We see his sacrifice for us and then we live that way in response to him. And Peter's current present tense exhortation rooted in this past scripture is simply this. God's character of grace is our fuel or basis for acting with biblical and gracious conduct. So I hope you've kind of followed the train of thought in these first four verses, this movement from mind to action, from thinking to living. And all of it, of course, is kind of sandwiched or rooted in this idea that there is past grace that should affect us and should cause us to think about future grace. And as we do, it motivates and fuels and changes our conduct so that we are living like God.
Now, when we put this flow of thought together, when we follow the movement of the text, we begin to realize, essentially, that our different way of thinking, our different way of living, finds its footing and fuel in God's grace, both his past grace and his future grace. In fact, the call to set our hope fully on the grace that is to come, this call for a confident assurance, this spiritual confidence, it's rooted in God's past grace. And I would say to you, it's, it's past grace that gives us the ability to look forward to future grace. And so this grace combined gives us the foundation for our hope. So our hope rests on grace. So the more that we are consumed with and obsessed with and having God's grace in view, the stronger our hope and the more changed our actions, the more holy our conduct. In a nutshell, I'd say it to you like this. God's grace provides both the footing and the fuel for living with confident assurance and holy conduct. Notice how I'm addressing both the mental and active components there. There's a thinking aspect. There's a, uh, an action aspect. And both find their footing and fuel in God's grace. Church, just let this passage, let these four verses, which begin Peter's answer to the question, you know, what's at the root of transformation? What's the core of real gospel change? He's beginning to answer it. And his answer is essentially this. It's God's grace. In the past and in the future, God's grace in giving us salvation in Jesus, God's grace in giving us the revelation of Jesus in which he'll finish our salvation. These two things occupy our attention. So it provides the footing and the fuel for, watch this, living with confident assurance or hope and then letting that be lived out in holy conduct. It's not an underestimation or an, or an overestimation. It's not hyperbole to say this. It is all about God's grace. And doesn't this fit with really the flow of Peter's thought beginning in verse three in which he says, we are not saved by our merit. We are saved by God's grace. He has caused us to be born again. Peter continues to make a strong march towards us realizing that everything in our life, spiritually speaking, for in salvation and sanctification is a result of God's grace. And so when we focus uh, on the grace of the past and the grace of the future, we will think differently and we will act differently. In fact, I believe this firmly. We will be increasingly different the deeper grace goes. So let's answer the question we ask in the intro, can we? What is the core of true change? When you peel the layers away, what's at the center of transformation? I believe the core of real gospel change, the core of true transformation is God's grace. So let me ask you some questions. Are you fixated on God's grace? Are you grace-obsessed? 
Are you thinking about the grace that is to come, future grace? And are you thankful for the grace that came, past grace? Do you pray daily, Lord, thank you for the cross? And do you pray daily, Lord Jesus, come quickly? Are Christ's cross and Christ's coming the objects of your full focus? If they are, you're probably, most assuredly, I should say, experiencing change in the way you think and the way you act. And if you're not, change is probably very slow, it seems distant, and you're wondering, what is going on? Now, I want to admit something to you. This answer may not be or sound the most exciting It may not sound the most culturally savvy. It may not have psychological lingo that's current. It may lack like, uh, you know, popular opinion. But I love the simplicity of God's word and the veracity and truthfulness of it. And Peter, inspired by the Spirit, told us how true transformation occurs. How do we move from unholy to holy How do we see God change us? It is by God's grace. And can I, for one, say to you, I'm so glad it's by God's grace and not my guilt or merit or effort. It is by God's grace. That's the seedbed, the core, the the center of real, true gospel transformation. I'm gonna stick with the word of God on this. Amen? Amen whether it lines up with the culture or sounds exciting or seems to be popular, I'm gonna be thankful and trust that it is God's grace that motivates every bit of change as possible. You see, I'm convinced that we've become easily distracted from this type of focus, but to our demise. We've become enamored with lesser things than God's grace. And as a result, we've become externally comfortable with little change. In all frankness, many folks in the church accommodate carnality as just the way it is. They kind of give themselves a quota for sin. You hear this line, well, I'm only human. We've kind of relegated holiness to this thing that we know Maybe we should do and maybe we could do, but it's just not worth the effort. It's almost in the category of the impossible. The reason we think that is because we're not grace-obsessed. We're not fixated on past grace and future grace. It's just a passing thought maybe a couple of times a week. It's not a daily meditation, and so we've just accommodated carnality. We're fine with lesser things. And the result is often we have unprepared minds and disobedient lives. We don't think correctly and we don't act wholly. So a few examples of how this looks in our culture perhaps. A teenager unlawfully experiments with alcohol or drugs just thinking, well, it's kind of what you do at a certain time Maybe they're feeling the pressure. They're giving in to 
their sinful curiosity and desires as this verse lays out. And so they are thinking, well, I'll just try it. I won't get addicted. But as every addict would say, they didn't plan to get addicted, but they did. And they found themselves having to have a drink years later or having to um, do drugs. And deep inside, in the middle of this addiction, they're wondering, is true transformation actually possible or is this my life now forever? An engaged couple, they allow just a little fornication while they're dating, even engaged. They decide to move in together. We're gonna test the waters, both do we get along at home and do we get along in the bedroom? But then they carry the guilt of that into their marriage and they're resentful of each other. They find this guilt and this regret to be overbearing and overwhelming. And both are wondering in their hearts, but they never voice it, is this just the way it's going to be or is true transformation actually possible? A wife or a husband just accepts that divorce must be the only way out. There's really no biblical grounds for it. This is not to minimize the hardness of their marriage, the difficulty, the pain, not saying that at all. But with no biblical reason, they just think, well, the culture says this is what you do, so we'll just sign the papers and be done with it. They assume they're past the point of no return, that their spouse is beyond repair, so let's just divorce. But inside, they're... Wondering, actually, is, is true transformation actually possible? Could this marriage be saved? Could I really be different toward my spouse? A man loves his job so much that he tells little lies repeatedly to cover for his workaholism. He loves the approval of those that are in his occupation even though in reality they don't matter in the end. He can't get past the pitfall of performance. All of his measure as a man is tied up in what those people think of him. He seeks their approval and he lies to his close friends, his family, just to make sure he gets it. All the time he's wondering, is true transformation possible? A woman cherishes her secret fantasies as a way to hide her relational disappointment. She would even say it's relational dysfunction. She doesn't know how to love and she doesn't feel loved. She's convinced she can't find true satisfaction anywhere. So she just keeps living in a life of lusts, fictional love. All the while she wonders, is true transformation possible? A church member he or she continues to selfishly take and consume. They never invest, they never serve, they never give. Oh, they're pretty regular. They pop in, they smile, they love what they get, and they pop back out. They're no more involved in cooking the meal, they just love to eat it. And deep inside they know, like, this is not the way I should actually operate. It seems like I should be in more invested. I should... Be vulnerable, join a small group, serve somewhere. I should attend a service, service, or there's some things I should do. I can't just keep consuming, but they just keep consuming anyway. While they're wondering, is this just really 
the way my life is, is, is true transformation possible? Let me take any one of those scenarios and the key to the transformation is the grace of God. It's Christ Jesus providing salvation in the past and Christ Jesus being revealed in the future, finishing our salvation. And when that occupies our attention, when God's grace, both past and future, becomes our obsession, when his sacrifice becomes what's consuming us, we then begin to experience a sacrificial type of life. He changes us because his character begins to be our character. His Holy Spirit begins to modify not just behavior, but internal character, desires, appetites. God changes us by his grace so that we then live with grace to others. Our conduct begins to look like his. That only comes through grace. That's why I want to make sure you hear this loud and clear. It's God's grace that's at the root of true gospel change. Is his grace your obsession this morning? Is his initiation of salvation, that's grace in the past, and his culmination of salvation, that's future grace, do those occupy your attention and mystify your mind? And do they consume your gaze? Do they leave your tongue speechless? Are you just amazed and left in wonder at what God did for you and what he's going to do for you? When that is your life story, your life will change. That's why I want to make sure that I ask you this question this morning. Are you saved? Do you know the salvation of God to the degree that, that you can't wait for him to finish what he started? Philippians 1.6. Do you revel and marvel in what he's done and do you long for him to come again? If not, if, if you're like, I don't think that's me, Todd, but I desire for that kind of change. I desire for that kind of relationship. I want to know God through Jesus I want true transformation. I would just urge you pastorally, trust in the Lord Jesus Christ this morning. Cry out and ask God to save you through Jesus and God will graciously do that. He will save you through the death and resurrection of his son and you'll begin to experience, it's a process over time, but you'll begin to experience, you'll have the fuel and the footing for true life change, actual gospel transformation. It's not because of your merit or efforts, not because of your good works, it's because of God's grace has become overwhelming, dominating. You just can't get over what God did and what he's going to do, and it begins to change your life. If I had to put it all in nine words, I'd just say this to you. Start at the cross and stare at the sky. When your life is comprised of starting at the cross and staring at the sky. Past grace and future grace. When God's work initiated and God's work culminated becomes the, the song you can't help but sing every day. 
It's the story you tell over and over. I have good news for you. Your life will change. It's my prayer that this will truly transform us into a hope-filled, holy community of Christ followers. We hope you enjoyed today's message. For more messages, visit firstfamily.church forward slash sermons or subscribe to our podcast feed. Thanks for listening.